Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, we're going to be continuing today a series that we began a number of weeks ago called The Lord of the Church. Now, when we say this, this is a series that is anchored in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And we have seen that in Revelation, the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. That's right. You guys are getting really good at this. I've asked you that question now eight times in a row. You're beginning to get the hang of it. So the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And specifically in the first three chapters of that book, we see that it's a revelation that Jesus is the Lord of his church. Now, that's not surprising to us, but it is encouraging. And we've seen how he revealed himself in glory and splendor to the Apostle John as he was on the Isle of Patmos. But then after that revelation, Jesus begins to dictate letters that are to be delivered to seven real churches that were in what we would know of as Turkey today. At that time, it was called Asia. Letters to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. So far, we have already seen the letters that Jesus penned to each of those churches. But today, we're going to look at the sixth letter that Jesus pens, and that's the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Now, while the name Pergamum or Thyatira might not be familiar to us, Philadelphia certainly is. But when we hear Philadelphia, we, all, we often think of the Phillies or the Eagles, or we think of cheesesteaks, or we think of the Liberty Bell. Uh, this is not that same Philadelphia. This is a Philadelphia, a real city in the ancient world, and there was a thriving church there in the first century, and Jesus writes them a letter. And Jesus says not only for them to read it, but for all who have ears to hear, to hear what Jesus is going to say to this church. So this morning, we're going to look at the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Philadelphia. But before we do that, I want to just orient us to the subject that we will see in that letter. And so I want you to pull out your keys. So if you have access, quick access to your keys, if they're in your pocket or they're in an easily accessible realm of your purse, um, pull those out and, and just kind of look at your keys. So when you look at your keys, you, you see some kind of a representation of things that you have some stewardship over, don't you? You see maybe where you live, maybe where you work. You see the, the vehicles that, that you drive. You, you see a reminder of the bike that you haven't ridden in a while or of the storage facility where a lot of your extra stuff resides or the key to a neighbor's house that you have a special relationship with. Uh, this that you hold in your hands is a reminder of a number of the different responsibilities and opportunities that are somewhat unique to you. Not everyone has this collection that you have in your hands. Furthermore, who has these keys matters to you. You only would want your keys to be in the hands of someone that you really trusted, which makes you wonder why they're in your pocket, right? But the reality is that, that we are, with our keys, we are reminded of these things that we have access to or responsibility for. Now, with that as a setup, I, I want us to see that in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, Jesus Christ himself lets us know what's on his keychain. He, he lets us know in Revelation 1.18 that he has on his keychain the keys of death in Hades. 
You know, we may have a Honda Accord. He has the keys of death in Hades. His, his sphere, his realm, his responsibility is significant. He is the one that holds power over death. He is the one who was raised from the dead and made a way for us to have life after death as well. He is the one who is sovereign over the place of the dead, Hades. And he is the one who is able to invite and include some in heaven with himself. And so when we think of Jesus, we remember that he has the key of death in Hades. But Jesus doesn't just have the key of death in Hades. Jesus also has on his keychain, according to Revelation 3, 7, a verse we're going to see this morning, he has the key of David. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, today we're going to see something of what that means and why it matters. Jesus shows us his keychain so that we might be reminded of how far and wide his sovereign power extends, the things that he has responsibility for and the things that he has special access to. And not only does he reveal those things to us so that we know that he has them, but friends, he reveals those things to us so that you and I might be encouraged. Friends, if one of us had these keys, we might screw it up. But Jesus has them. And so we are encouraged to trust in him. We're going to see today what all this means and how it connects to the church in Philadelphia and ultimately to our lives as we look at part eight of this series in Revelation chapter three, verses seven to 13. If you've got a Bible, take it and turn there. We're going to spend most of our time in these few verses today. I want to read them for us and then we'll back up and make a few observations of how these verses connect to our lives. Jesus dictates this letter and he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, friends, in these few verses, we're going to see three things today that will encourage us, hopefully, God willing, will encourage us to trust Jesus more. Well, what are those truths? The first thing we need to see is this. No one can separate us from God's love. No one can separate us from God's love. Well, where do we see that in the passage? Well, I think we see it in the first few verses of this letter, but it's important for us to to see where they come from in those verses. See, in the first few verses here, Jesus reveals himself and reveals a special part of his identity to the church there in Philadelphia. Remember, Jesus didn't sign all these letters from Jesus, but he highlighted different aspects of his character to each and every church. 
And so to the church at Philadelphia, he signs his letter this way. He says that this letter is from the one who is holy, the holy one. Now, when Jesus is saying that he is holy, that's not a surprise to us. We, we just sang earlier, holy, holy is our God. And even if we look a little later on in Revelation, we'll see that in heaven, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If we look back to Isaiah chapter 6 and the vision of heaven that Isaiah had, he hears the same song, holy, holy, holy. So this is an important aspect, characteristic of our God. He is holy. Jesus Christ is holy. But what does it mean to say that he is holy? It means that he is perfect and without blemish completely and fully upright. By that, we can have a confidence. If we are following Christ, in no way will he ever lead us into moral error because he's holy. He's not going to walk in those paths. He will lead us in righteousness. Jesus says this letter is from the holy one. He also says this letter is from the true one. Now, again, this is a concept that we're quite familiar with. Jesus would say of himself in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no error in Jesus. He does not lie. He does not spin. In a world where how do we know who to trust or what to trust? We begin to question all of the sources, and my blog is better than your blog, and my source is better than your source. How do we know what the truth is? Jesus says truth is found in me. I am the truth. So we can be encouraged if we're following Jesus, he will not lead us into intellectual error, not just moral error, but intellectual error. Jesus is not just the holy one, he's also the true one. But he continues on. He doesn't just say that he is the holy one and the true one, but he also says that he has the key of David. Now, this one's a little harder for us, isn't it? I mean, holy and true, we, we kind of know what that's about. But what's this idea of the one who has the key of David? Well, first of all, it reminds us that Jesus was a descendant of David. David was the king of Israel. He was given a promise that someone would sit on his throne uh, for a kingdom that would go on and on and on. And Jesus, as a descendant of David, was to fulfill those promises that were given to David. But I think by referencing here the key of David, he's not just providing some loose connection to David, but it's actually referencing a very specific part in season in the history of Judah, the southern kingdom, um, during the reign of King Hezekiah. The reason why I think that is because this phrase, the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, that's almost a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 22. So what was going on in Isaiah chapter 22? Well, in Isaiah 22, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, this, the southern kingdom, and he had a finance minister by the name of Shebna. Now, Shebna, who was this finance minister, did not handle the king's treasure in an appropriate way. As a matter of fact, he was skimming a little off the side in order to take care of his own personal interests. And because Shebna was misusing the treasures of the king, it was ultimately harming the people of Judah. You can imagine if the government was misusing resources, it would be something that would negatively impact its citizens. The same thing happening here in Judah. 
And so God sees what is going on, and he takes the finance ministry title away from Shebna, and he gives it to this man by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim was someone who was upright and who would better administer the resources of the king so that the things that he opens up were the right things. And he would open the treasures of the king to put those resources to the best uses. And he would close the resources of the king to the things that it needed to be closed from. That was the the understanding and the idea. In other words, Judah could rest a little easier and the nation could be blessed because Eliakim and not Shebna had the key to the treasures of the king. Now that same idea is, is pointed to here with Jesus. If Eliakim is better than Shebna, guess who's better than Eliakim? This is not hard. Who's better than Eliakim? Jesus, right? Jesus shows us the keys. And he he says, friends, I have the key to the treasures of God. I have the keys to his kingdom and all of the blessings that lie inside of that. And Jesus says, I'm going to handle those keys in the best way possible because I am holy and I am true. And so what I open Only I can open, and I will give access to who needs to have access to it. And what I close, Jesus says, I will sovereignly close, and you can count on me to do what is right and good for the people of God. Now, this is significant to the church in Philadelphia because like many churches in the first century, they were experiencing some troubles and some challenges. There were some opponents to this church. And they were probably feeling somewhat insignificant and beaten about. But the one who has the keys, who is holy and true, writes to them and says this. He says, I've opened the door to you, Philadelphia church, and nobody is going to be able to shut it. Jesus said, I have opened the doors to the treasures of the kingdom to you, followers of Christ, and no one is able to shut it. There is no enemy of God that is able to keep you from the treasures that I have for you. Now, what is at the the core of the treasures that God has for us? At the center of it is his motivating factor of his love. And because of that, it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. When this is said, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us. No one can separate us from the love of God. So that if God opens the door to his love to us, no one can close it and keep us from it. No one can close it and keep us from him. Now, in Philadelphia, there certainly were those that were trying to to kick them out. There were those who were trying to persecute the church in that city. And the people who were trying to do that were those that he describes as the synagogue of Satan, who said that they were Jews but were not. We've seen them in other cities where the Jewish people in a city were turning on the Christians in that city and turning them over to the Romans for persecution. 
Jesus sees what's going on in the city of Philadelphia, and he says, Philadelphia church, there are those who are, who are warring against you from the Jewish community, and, and they are trying to get you to deny my name. But Jesus said, I see that you have not denied my name. I see that you have stayed with me, that you have stuck with me. And Jesus lets them know that even though right now they have little power, even though right now they feel like they're losing and not winning, even though right now they feel like the synagogue was in a place of power and they were in a place of weakness, Jesus said, eventually, history will reveal that you are on the right side. Follower of Christ, if you are here today and and you feel as though following Christ has you beaten about in this world, if it appears that there are others following a different path who are prospering more than you are, if you have ever wondered if following Christ is really worth it, Jesus reveals to us in this letter that eventually history will show that those who follow Christ were on the right side of history. And he makes this clear when he says that eventually Jesus will make them, who's the them? Well, the opponents of the church. He will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this echoes a number of other statements about Jesus throughout the New Testament. In places like Romans 14, 11, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Eventually, history will reveal that Jesus is in fact who he said he was. And those who are with him will be vindicated for having made the right choice in this life. While those who reject him will experience the consequence of that. But all will see it. All will recognize it. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, history will eventually vindicate and prove that Jesus is who he says he is. If you want to be on the right side of history, that's a statement that's said a lot today, right? You want to be on the right side of history? If you want to be on the right side of history, trust Christ now because history will reveal him as triumphant and will reveal him as the genuine son of God. But this statement where he says, I will make them come and bow down before you. I, I think there is something else that is important for us to see there. Not just that the world in general will come to know this reality, but also the, the them will come to know this reality. Well, who's the them? Well, the them in this passage is talking back to this group that he identifies as the synagogue of Satan, the Jewish people. And I think that what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's hinting at something that we will see a little later on in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that there will one day be a generation of Jews that will be present upon the earth on, at the time when Christ returns. And when Christ returns at that time, that generation of Jews will be saved because they will have turned to Christ as their Savior and Lord Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel at this time, in this season where we live, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until this era of history is over. But then when Christ actually comes at the end of this era of history, there will be a generation of Israel that will embrace him. 
And again, it reminds us of what Jesus says here. That one day, even the Jews that opposed Christ, their descendants one day will bow at the feet of Christ and declare that he is Lord. Friends, if you want to be on the right side of history, Jesus says, trust me now. If you want to have access to the love of God, know that Jesus has opened those doors to you and will let no one shut it. And ultimately, eternity will reveal that that's the way that it is. No one can separate us from God's love. There's a second thing that we need to see inside of these verses. And that second thing is this. No Christian will be subject to God's wrath. No Christian will be subject to God's wrath. Now, where do we see that? Well, we see it in verses 10 and 11. Right at the beginning of verse 11, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am coming soon. Now, in all of the letters to the churches, often Jesus will hint at his arrival. Last week, we saw that he was going to come like a thief in the night. And so the church needed to be prepared for that in Sardis. They needed to repent while they had time. But we've often talked about in this series how those arrivals were often Jesus coming in in some kind of a way to discipline his church. Maybe not physically coming, but working through things that he has access to, including the leadership of the church, in order to bring discipline to this world. But when we get to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, when Jesus says he is coming, it's not so much his indication that he is coming to clean something up. The tone of the letter is not, I'm coming to correct your problem. The tone of the letter to Philadelphia is, I'm coming, therefore be encouraged. That's the tone. And I think that this arrival of Christ is speaking of not just his disciplining of one local church, but it's speaking of something that will impact the entire world. Now, why do I think that? Well, I think that because of what he says around this. He says that he's coming, but he says that as he is coming, there's also this thing that is coming that is called the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, not just coming to the church in Philadelphia or to the city of Philadelphia. That's the way Jesus talked to the other churches. But he says here that there's an hour of trial that is coming to the whole world. And the purpose of that trial is going to be to try those who dwell upon the earth. There's a coming day, Jesus says, when the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth in a prolonged fashion in order to levy God's judgment upon the earth in real time. Now, this era of time that is coming... Jesus says, I am coming soon, but then he adds this little caveat. I'm coming soon to keep you from the hour of trial. Now, isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus says, there is a time that is coming when my wrath will be poured out upon the earth. But before my wrath is poured out upon the earth, Jesus says, I am coming to keep you from it. Not to keep you through it, not to pull you out from the midst of it, but the language here is actually fairly clear. Jesus says, I am coming to keep you from 
the hour of trial, to keep you from the period of time when my wrath will be poured out upon the earth. So what are we talking about with all of this? Well, I think it's helpful for us to see a couple of these things in a bigger context. The first thing we need to see is what I believe and what Wildwood understands the scripture to teach, that the hour of trial is referring to an era of time known as the great tribulation that will come upon the earth. It'll be the time when God's wrath is poured out upon the earth in waves. Now, this era is something that is talked about in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. So we have not yet studied it inside of our, our series as we've been walking through Revelation. We will get there eventually. But for now, just know that all of those things that are talked about in terms of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth, I believe are a part of this hour of trial that is a yet future time when God will be pouring out his wrath upon the earth. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, lets us know something of the duration of this hour of trial. It describes it as a set of seven. And based on the context of Daniel 9, we understand that to be seven years. We'll, we'll look at this a little more in depth at a later date. But it's important for us here and our purpose here to just see that this hour of trial is talking about a future pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth that is described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It includes things like the Antichrist. It includes things like the mark of the beast. It includes this, these, this judgment that God is going to put upon the earth with earthquakes and, and all kinds of pestilence and different things that will happen upon the earth in that era. That is all a part of a, something that has not yet happened. It's a part of a future hour of trial, a great tribulation upon the earth. And Jesus says he is going to keep us from that. He's going to keep us from that. This idea of keeping us from that is the anchor or the root in the idea of the rapture of the church. Now, what, what do we mean when we say the rapture of the church? The word rapture is an English word that actually doesn't appear in our scripture. And so some might think that this is a concept that the Bible doesn't teach, but that's not accurate. This is actually, the word rapture goes back to a Latin word, raptura, that is actually anchored in um, the translation of this Greek word that is translated here, caught up together. This idea, for the Lord himself, First Thessalonians says, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jesus is, is saying here that I will come in the clouds, and I will gather my church to myself. And then I will take you to heaven with me before my wrath is poured out upon the earth. It's an incredible promise that Jesus gives to us. Now, this is a promise that could be summarized in this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. There are a number of different views on this, but the view that I think best explains Scripture is this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, which is what this says. Pre-tribulational, before the hour of trial, Jesus will rapture, keep from the hour of trial his church. Now that idea is consistent with the heart of Christ for us. 
First Thessalonians, the central passage, First Thessalonians 4 on the rapture, on both sides of that verse says this about the wrath of God. It says in verse 10 of chapter 1, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who keeps us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has not destined us for his wrath. So before his wrath comes to the earth, Jesus will bring us and take us to his side. No Christian in this era, if you trust in Christ, no Christian will be subject to God's wrath. The Lord will discipline us in his love. We've talked about that already in this series. But he will not smite us in his wrath. When his wrath comes, we will be beside him in heaven, not under him in judgment. What a promise that Jesus gives. Friends, if the wrath of God is a scary concept for you, and let's be honest, if it isn't, it should be. The wrath of God is intimidating to you. If if it's scary to you, Jesus says there is a way for you to avoid the wrath of God. There's a way for you to be beside him and not under him when judgment comes. And that way is found by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Trusting in Christ not only puts us on the right side of history, trusting Christ removes us from history before the wrath of God visits this planet. So, as we sit here today, are we trusting in Christ? Jesus sends this letter to encourage us. He says, there's a time that is coming when my wrath will hit this place. If you want to avoid that, trust me now. Friends, that ought to motivate us to wait no longer but to trust Christ. That ought to motivate us, instead of keeping this message to ourselves, to proclaim it to all who could hear. We want no one to be here when that happens. And so, everyone that we know proclaim the truth of the gospel that they might respond and repent while they have time. So we've seen that no one can separate us from God's love. We've seen that no Christian will be subject to God's wrath. But there's a a third thing we need to see, and that is this. Nothing can shake the Christian. Now, when I I say that, I, I want to make sure that we understand this accurately. I'm not saying that nothing will bother us. Of course, things will bother us. There are lots of difficult things that we will go through in our lives. What I'm saying is is not that there aren't difficult things that we will experience. What I'm saying is that there is nothing that can shake us out of the place of provision that God has for us. See, the church in Philadelphia was familiar with the shakiness of living in this world. It was a city that had been hit by earthquakes, in fact, had been destroyed by earthquakes twice in the period of about a hundred years before this letter was written. The situation was so dire in that city that residents of Philadelphia didn't live inside the walls. Many of them lived outside the walls because they were afraid that those walls would come crashing down upon them when the next earthquake or aftershock hit. They had no security. Not only that, But the city and the world at this era that was most identified with God's provision and blessing, the city of Jerusalem, had just been sacked. The Romans had just destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They had just torn the temple that they had seen with their eyes and 
had just torn that to the ground. And so there was a lot of shakiness, a lot of uneasiness because of the circumstances in the world. But Jesus writes to this group that was being shaken by many things, and he reminds them of this. He says, there is security that is to be found, but it's not found in this world, it's found in me. Jesus said, the one who conquers, the believer, Jesus said, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The temple that you've known in this world is destroyed, but there is a a future place where God's going to be, and I'm going to put you inside of it. Never shall he go out of it. You'll be with God forever. And he says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God. They may call you names, but in your identity, in your eternal passport, it's going to say you're a follower of mine. You're a follower of God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem that was just destroyed, but the new Jerusalem that is to come, the place of eternal dwelling for us. Jesus said, that is where your true home is which comes down from my God out of heaven. And Jesus said, I'm putting my stamp on you. What Jesus was saying was there is a place of security. And that place of security is found not in you. It's found in Christ. Look at all the different references here that Jesus gives of himself. I, my, I, my, 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 my. Where is security found? It's not found in us, friends. Our eternal security is found in Jesus. And if we are trusting in him, we can be certain that he will open the doors to his blessing and he will not allow anyone to close it. What do we do? How do we respond? Well, Jesus gives this church in Philadelphia and by virtue of preserving it in scripture, he gives us this encouragement that we might keep his word. Now, I love what he says, keep my word about patient endurance. Even though we were going to miss the wrath of God, we are still going to experience hard times in this life. But Jesus said, even when you experience those hard times, keep trusting in me. Jesus said, if you trust in me, that will provide the security that you desire. Hold fast these things that you have been presented because they represent a hope that no one can take from you. Jesus is encouraging his church to embrace him in faith and to hold fast to him in this time. Friends, as we gather here today, a couple of of things. If you are, are here today and you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then may these verses reveal to you a God who wants to open the door to his love to you and wants to protect you from his wrath that is to come. May you run into the door that he has opened and may you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And for others who are here today that, that, that have professed faith in Christ at some point in the past, may may this be a reminder to us of where our security is really found. It's found not in our performance, it's found in him. And let us be reminded that this message is not a message for us to keep to ourselves, but it's a message to share with others while they have time to repent. Friends, nothing can shake the Christian. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this great truth Thank you for this wonderful passage of your word 
that encourages us with the reality of who you are. May we be a people that respond by holding fast your word, by keeping it even in a generation that wants to pull us in many directions. May we continue to trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be protected before your wrath comes. In your love and in your mercy, you've made a way. May we trust in your work on the cross and proclaim that truth so that others will believe while they have time. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.